Welcome to Imperfect Action. This is Brock Edwards, and today's guest is Dana Luke Aramoto. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you, and uh, what do you do? Sure. I am 23 years in staffing, human capital, helping people find jobs, giant industry that's a really a big global space, and four years in nonprofit. So kind of did my heart job, did my brain job. Now what I like to say almost three years into being a solopreneur, executive coach, leadership coach, and author, speaker, I'm doing sort of my universal job of helping people break through, accelerate their own transformations, and also working on figuring out the best way to lead a holistic, authentic life and sharing those lessons. All right. Wow. So that, there's a lot there, but I, before we even get to that, I'm really curious. So three years ago, you branched off into this new venture. Yeah. So what was the, what was the impetus? What was the transition like for you? Um, jarring. <laughs> so uh, I was running a company. I had helped a founder sell her company to private equity. I was running the company. And then with the private equity group, we decided to buy another company of equal size and during that time, I was bringing in a new CEO to partner with me, who I had been friends with for about a decade in similar space in our staffing industry, and realized really in one night's time that I didn't want to be involved in corporate kind of stuff anymore. I was about to defect. And so part of that was probably around a 20-year journey of wanting to write a book and share lessons and help people, including myself. And part of it was I was just done. I had done everything I had set out to do and then some in, in corporate America and even across the globe. And then also had done some nonprofit work, like I said. So I, it was like I had checked every box for myself in the career category, but there was so much more I wanted to do holistically. I realized in almost a moment's time at an event, I was running and moderating of women in technology in Silicon Valley with one of the speakers who had said to me on a panel, you know, the problem is no one has enough white space. And she was really talking to the audience, but it was like time slowed down for me. And I thought, oh gosh, she's talking to me. And she's right. I don't have enough white space to think and create and really do what I want across all the critical components of my life. And now is the time I've earned it. So that's kind of how it happened. So did you know what you wanted to do? Did you take a leap? Did you take some time to reflect? How, how did that yeah, work for you? I, I knew and I was terrified that I had helped so many founders, owner operators, entrepreneurs, and I always fashioned myself this great number two. And then when I became president of a company, I realized I don't really want that either. I love really helping inspire and develop and mentor and train people to get to what's next for themselves individually and in a company scenario. And I realized I wanted to coach and that really everything was dress rehearsal leading up to that. So I knew I wanted to coach and start my own coaching company. Uh, I certainly had the credentials and the body of work. I just lacked the confidence. The book was sort of you know, one eye closed, one eye opened and hiding underneath something 
do I really want to be an author? And um, I knew I did, but I just thought, boy, this will be a stepping stone. So I'll start the coaching and I'll build some more confidence and then I'll, I'll start working on my book in earnest. So funny because you mentioned that, okay, so you had this solid body of work. You've got a lot of great experience. You're very something that it is different, but played to your skill set. It sounds like you had, you had done that in the past for other people. You were just kind of making it official. Yes. So it sounds like if anyone should have been confident, it should have been you, Dana. And yes, Brock. I, I'm always curious about this. You know, I, I am very always very curious about imposter syndrome and just how to develop confidence and how do you get out there. So for you, what was it that enabled you to to really be able to say, "Yeah, no, I, I've got this." Well, it was imposter syndrome. I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I talk about that a lot, especially when I do keynotes. And it's almost at this point, age and race and sex irrelevant. Uh, we all suffer from it in some way, shape or form. That's just the way it is. Um, for me, it was much more that I knew exactly what I did not want from having done so many things. And I knew that with a little piece of equity under my belt from helping that founder sell her company, if not now, when? And probably the third piece was my own young daughters at the time, now 15 and 19. So three years ago, you can imagine the drama and emotionality of two teenage daughters. And having had been a single mom for about 10 of those years, I realized you know, the message I'm sending them, if I don't take the leap now that financially it makes sense, I've done everything I set out to do in my career and then some, and there's some major changes coming with this new company and private equity board that I really don't want to do. It was a little bit like the trifecta. It was almost impossible for me to talk myself out of taking the leap. So when you're coaching people and they're looking to make that leap, whether it's become a solopreneur, start their own business, you know, defect from corporate life. I like the way you put that. What What is the kind of the universal or the key advice or, or what is it that you wish people knew before they made that? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, a bunch of things. First of all, I wish they knew that they had a lot more credibility underneath them than they give themselves credit for. So I'll tell you how to do that. And here's a practical, actionable tip, because I always try to give those. And someone gave it to me long ago, and she'll probably deny it. But Catherine, thank you if you're listening. So looking back over the last year or two or three, and literally writing down your key accomplishments, not what you want to do, what you will do, Certainly not the shoulds, not what you should do, because it's a trap, but what you have done, especially the last 12 to 18 months. If people would just do that practice every year, instead of making these stupid New Year's resolutions that no one keeps and they set us up to feel bad about ourselves, just look back and really be prescriptive. What have I done and what was the value? It builds unbelievable confidence and credibility for yourself that, in fact, you've done a lot. Most people have actually done a bunch of stuff in 12 to 18 months. And again, not just in career, but throughout your life, write those things down. So that's the first thing. The next thing I would strongly recommend 
is getting some objective perspective, whether it's coaching or mentorship or even peer-to-peer, someone that's willing to give it to you straight, the good, the bad, and the ugly, really face it. You know, it's a little overused, but lean into it and really look at the opportunity and what you really want to do and whether or not you're qualified. Chances are you are. So I'm thinking about that, the first exercise that you mentioned there, just cataloging your successes. That sounds like one of those things that is easy to dismiss, like just intellectually go, okay, yeah, I got it. I, I see why that's important and never do it. But I suspect there's a subtlety there that that is actually, um, speaking of overused words, transformational. But I, I can imagine that just kind of being the you know cold bucket of water poured over you what, once you actually are able to sit back and look at all that you've actually done. Yes. Yes, it it is very much like what you describe. And also, most of us, not all of us, but most of us are pretty humble. And we don't do a good job of taking credit for our own work. And in some corporate situations in particular, others take credit for our work and we sort of get used to it, almost like immune. So I strongly recommend, I call it fact versus fiction. Really focus on the facts, not the opinion or fiction, but really what you've accomplished, which takes more than a couple of minutes because you really have to be uh, factual about what those accomplishments were. So you can't just say fluffy things like, I hired great people. How many people? What kinds of people? What did it take to get those people into your company? Uh, Really focus on the reality of the situation. That really makes the exercise more interesting and more powerful. You've got, uh, so you've got this book out called Stop Settling, Settle Smart. What, what does it mean to settle smart? Yeah, it's a little confusing, isn't it? Yeah, stop doing it, but please go do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So what it means is that we are not actually capable of work-life balance. And if we think we are, it's a fleeting moment that's totally unsustainable, like a hamster in a wheel. What it also means is that in order to settle both positively and or not positively, we have to make conscious trade-offs and decisions. So in fact, if we take sort of the negative connotation off the word settling, as if it's something bad, And instead, make it more neutral. Then what we realize is my definition of settling is very different than yours, is very different than my children's, is very different than my neighbor's, and so on. And the trade-offs and conscious voluntary things that I choose to spend my time on to get the quality of life I'm going for are completely up to me, situationally and relatively. Hence, it's smart to settle. So really just recognizing, I guess, that um, we're all different. And I know that's what you just said, but it's so easy to compare. I I, I found in my own life that it's really easy to compare, like, myself to different people on different things. So this person has, you know, the little nicer house. This other person has a little nicer car. The other person has a little better job. Other person, wow, they seem to have a better relationship with, with their spouse. And then 
you know, it, it can end up feeling like I'm losing all around, but really I'm just picking battles that I, that I lose versus being able to really compare myself to uh, objectively, I guess. I don't know if that made any sense at all, Dana. It totally does. And I think what happens, and maybe it's a little bit old school and nomenclature, but the, that keeping up with the Joneses thing, I call that we're shooting ourselves to death because it's like, oh, I should do this or I should do that, or they're doing it, so I should do that. And in fact, what the settling spectrum is, is a very private, personal, individualized discussion with yourself about what it is that you really want, if there was no other comparison. And so what I like to say then to get people to free themselves up, because we're so rigid, is that if you had this endless bucket of money and magic wand, then what? How would you prioritize? Where would you spend your time? How would you get your joy and derive the quality of life that you want? And certainly contribution is key. Um, you know, it's not that we don't have financial constraints and it's not that we have unlimited time. Unfortunately, we don't. We're human and we have limits. So really thinking in a freed up way about the priorities that you would spend time on across these, what I identified as five key life facets, only one of which, by the way, is work. So well, let's talk about work a little bit. So, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about work-life balance. Um, well, I'm just going just to leave that as an open-ended question because I know you've got a lot to say about work-life balance. <laughs> In my opinion, it's a myth. Most people that are trying to achieve work-life balance will tell you in a moment of honesty, panic, or sheer and utter hitting their head on the wall, it's kind of a, a game we play. That if you just do all the heavy lifting and you do everything and be your all like this superhero complex, you can achieve it all and then you'll be happy. When most people will tell you, I'll use a public domain figure, I'll use Ariana Huffington, who, you know, hits her head on the glass table of her penthouse because she's sleep deprived. Granted, she's doing incredible things. She's taking on Rupert Murdoch. She's changing the face of journalism. Huff Post at the time, early days. She hit the wall hard. And then, you know, in the hospital has the epiphany that, wow, we're really not able to not sleep most of us, and goes on with her resources and her incredible intellect to do her sleep study and comes up with quantifiable research and writes the book on sleep that, in fact, only 4% or less of the population can get away with less than four hours of sleep a night. So she literally hits her head. Well, how many of us have had similar situations? We get sick because we're doing too much. We think we can do it all. We have endless limits, but that's not true. How many of us are actually, you know, told from a young age that as long as you do all the heavy lifting, you can have anything you want anytime and always. It's not true. I'm on a soapbox. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, how do you, how do you judge where the balance is? Because at the extremes, it's easy. Like, can, can I physically work anymore? No. Okay. Well then I know I'm there, but when we talk about balance, it's, well, I could get trade off this a little bit for that. And yeah, I could have done more on this part of my life. Uh, but that means that that's, of course, an opportunity cost on another part of our life. 
how do we find, oh, I don't know, you said balance is a myth. So how do we find the, the point where it makes sense for us? Yeah, I, I call it harmony beats balance every time. And it's about the harmonious integration of what it is that you really want, which is a question most people are kind of freaked out by. Like if I'm giving a keynote and I say, what is it that you really want? People kind of, you know, they look away. Don't call on me. Please don't come over here. Don't point at me. Don't, don't pick me. So the five key facets of life that we all share in common are career, family, friends, society, which is, you know, community, giving back, church, neighborhood, however you define it, and vitality, self-care, health and fitness, etc. And I actually have a quiz, a five-minute, super easy, non-invasive, free quiz where people can self-assess where am I currently and where do I want to be across all five of those life facets. And to your point, Brock, there is a scale. I call it the settling spectrum. And the spectrum is I am always settling, frequently settling, neutral, infrequently settling, or never settling. And people that say, I am never settling in career, family, friends, society, vitality, they're usually, like myself, fairly type A, kind of an overachiever. Maybe they've hit their head a couple times, they're still learning, or maybe they've hit their head really, really hard. They're just not ready to admit it yet that they really are out of energy. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, the extremes, which are pretty dangerous, by the way, and not recommended by this coach, you have people that are always settling. Uh, I have a daughter that sort of struggles with this. It's a bit victim-y. So it's never quite like what she wants in any aspect of her life. It's a bit of the poor me thing. And that's a really hard one. It's pretty painful. My suggestion is most of us are somewhere in the middle. And most of us, as evidenced in my book with the research I've done in my quiz respondents, most people want to shift something. They want to spend more or less time at work, more or less time with family, more or less time with friends, uh, definitely more time in society and community. Most people are pretty anemic there and seemingly want to spend a little more time doing that. They just can't figure out how, because again, they'd have to trade something off. And then vitality. So many of us, especially if we have complex lives, I'll use myself as an example, you know, single mom for 10 years, raising two daughters, working in a global job, really, really stretched. I came last for so many years, my own health, welfare, vitality, you know, what happens to putting the oxygen mask on before helping others? Well, that seems fine in an emergency, but in day-to-day -day life, it's like, no way I got to put me last, but it's such a trap. So most people, when you free them up, say, ooh, I would love to get back to running, or I'd love to do meditation every day, or I would love to paint, or whatever it is that you would define as your vitality facet. Does that help illustrate it does, a little bit? It does, but you mentioned that most people don't know what they want. And that seems to be a recipe for being completely out of balance, because then you're always just chasing... I don't know, the, the immediate shiny or what other people tell you, you should want, or you're running from the things you know you don't want. So how do you figure out what you want? And I know that's a big question. It is. I guess for me, the reason I came up with uh, the quiz and sort of this methodology 
And in my book, I separate it into these three pieces, three phases. There's this method because you have to be aware. You have to ask yourself. And, you know, I guess right now for people that are listening, how many times have you or someone else asked you, what is it that you really want? I'm not sure anyone ever asked me that until I asked myself. Pretty freeing. I'm 51. And then there's this mindset that's sort of the second phase of this. So figure out what it is that you want and then shift your mindset, make different choices about how you spend your time relatively, of course, and situationally. I'm not like prescribing everybody quit your job, like anarchy. That's not going to work. But certainly there are incremental changes that most of us can make even without magic or endless money. And then what I call the third phase is this movement that I'm, you know, ideally going to create, which is where people are not only figuring out what it is they really want and acting on it, they're sharing it with others who are also operating that way. So think of that inside of a company. There's a mismatch between corporations and what they want and what they expect of their employees and what employees as individuals want for themselves. So the conversation, the conscious conversation that might take place between a company talking about what they want of the employee body and what individual people want for themselves. And if we can close those gaps, retention goes up, loyalty goes up, engagement goes up, health and welfare goes up, costs go down, productivity goes up. It's it's a really blissful situation, but it's definitely going to take time. So I like to start simple with this conscious level of knowing and then talking about it and doing something about it. I, I've heard there's a, a saying, as in saying that, you know, but before... Enlightenment, you chop wood, you carry water. After enlightenment, you chop wood, you carry water. You know, still have to do, deal with life. Mm. And, you know, it almost seems like this idea of work-life balance is, has become kind of a modern day, you know, um, this huge finish line, almost to the level of enlightenment, maybe. So when, when people have settled smart, when, they, when they've gotten all their priorities figured out and, and they know where kind of that balance, well, use balance, but you know, that, that, that point in their lives where they're making the, the right trade-offs for them. What does life tend to look like after that? Yeah, it's, it's happier. It's healthier. Uh, many of my individual clients that I work with on a coaching level will tell you that they feel like they actually have more time. Some of them will describe it as coming back to themselves. Um, a CEO I coach has recently said to me, I guess I was a baby CEO and now I'm a grown up. And I said to him, I think you were a teenager when I got a hold of you. But yeah, now you're a grown up CEO. Um, I'll give you a good example. One of the things I talk to CEOs about a lot is their real job. And so many of them think they have all these jobs and all these hats. But the truth is, a CEO's job is actually really three things it's opening doors, it's clearing obstacles, and it's tiebreaker. So imagine the shift a CEO has if they actually run their company in that way, playing those three important critical roles, but nothing else. It's so freeing. And for founder entrepreneur types, they will tell you that's when they can make the shift of working more on their business and less in their business. And every entrepreneur knows that that is a pivotal shift that has to happen unless you want to like, you know, be stuck in the day to day for the rest of your life. 
Yeah. So, uh, that, you know, that, that's interesting to me because I haven't really thought about it. I mean, sure, clearing obstacles. I mean, that, that's kind of a role I, I think of any leader and opening doors makes sense, especially at a CEO level, but tiebreaker as a, a key function. I mean, you didn't say visionary. You, you, there's a lot you left out in there to, to narrow it down to those three points. And, and maybe those are points four, five, six, seven, eight. But what is the, what, tell me about tiebreaker. Yeah. So tiebreaker is you have a great team around you. You have a right hand and a left hand. You have done the rising of the tide and people are really operating fairly autonomously and they are doing the most that they're capable of doing in your organization. So when they really get stuck, they come to you because they need a tiebreaker but they've already worked it out amongst themselves peer to peer, especially on your leader line. Okay. What haven't I asked you yet, Dana? I, yeah, I'll just add one more quick thing there. I, I called it when I became president, which was so important to me and then went, Oh, I don't want that. Uh, it became really obvious to me at that point that people were not self-managing very well. And I kind of, was pointing the finger thinking, well, they're just not, you know, leaders. They're not mature enough. They're not working to the best of their abilities. But what I realized was it was also me because I was kind of a control freak. So I was not expecting enough of them and I wasn't giving them enough freedom either. So it's like setting clear expectations, being super clear about accountability and then get out of their way. They'll come to you when they're stuck. So I actually want to talk about that just for, for a little bit, if you don't mind, because so that's a tough one. So I'm a leader. I'm responsible for results in the company. And now you're saying, OK, but you, you've got to let go. How can someone who yes. <laughs> is feeling a high sense of personal responsibility for results feel OK about letting go a little bit? Uh, set people up for success. Hire the right people invest in people, find out what it is they really want. So now we come full circle in this discussion. And within human possibility, give them what it is they really want. If they say, I need an alternate schedule because my family is a big priority and I need to work this altered flex schedule, if it's humanly possible, do it. And be explicit about accountability and what you expect everybody's a grown up and then get out of their way. It does start with hiring the right people though, and investing in them for sure. All right. So I, you know, we're about out of time here, Dana, actually. So two final questions that I always like to ask. One is where can people find you? Great. Subtlesmart.com at Dana to the fifth on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, you name it, but you can find me pretty easily off of settlesmart.com. All right, so I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, and so I've got to ask, Dana to the fifth, how, how, did you, how did you come to that? Yeah, fifth element, fifth dimension. If you think about the complexity of things when you get beyond 3D and into 4 and 5D, it's really this term that's called quintessence, which is almost inexplicable. It's so complex. But boiling it down, it becomes clarity, which is my mission. Right, excellent. Well, along along those lines, uh, you know, I always like to ask, 
How can the listeners help you? What would your ask be of them? Oh, that's great. Thank you. Uh, please read my book, Stop Settling, Settle Smart, about rethinking work-life balance and redesigning your busy life. And reviews on Goodreads and Amazon are unbelievably appreciated. And share stories. Go on LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram or on my website and share your own personal stories, how you're doing. I would love to hear from you. Excellent. Well, we're going to end it right there. Thank you so much, Dana. Thank you. Just a little